Hi folks, my name is George and I am an alcoholic. I, uh, I was born in uh, Oakland, which is nearby. Actually, it's to my left in this picture behind me. And I currently live in the, in the community that's behind me in this photograph about 12 miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge. I was, there was no alcoholism in my family except for my father who I've never even seen a picture of. I unfortunately got his last name on my birth certificate. So when I applied for a passport, I had a last name all of a sudden that I'd never used. I, I was aware of it, but I'd never used it. My parents, my mother was, was a single uh, mother for many years and uh, she remarried uh, when I was five. And you know, one of the weird coincidences that in my life is that I just re I just retired from serving as a cook at a recovery facility that is at the opposite end of the same block that my parents taught at for 30 years. Absolutely no other connection. But I find it quite often, I think coincidences lead us to think that there must be some divine or uh, an extraterrestrial uh, intelligence involved. And uh, I still don't believe that. <clears throat> it's one of the main problems I had when I finally accepted that I needed help, but that didn't happen for a long time. Uh, my parents were concerned because they taught severely many handicapped children that I, that I should be put into grade school a little bit early. So if I needed to be held back, I would be okay. And they put me in a, in a, in a school in San Francisco that was very progressive. And, uh, Folk singer by the name of Pete Seeger came to sing. I, you may be familiar with his, with him. He just recently died. He was quite a communist communist singer. He was involved with the farm workers and he, very progressive. Anyway, I had a, a a record from that from that appearance. I remember that, and I was only uh, six years old at the time, and I was in first grade because they put me in a private school so I could go on to a regular school. Uh, and, and second grade early, half a year early. And he wrote, he sung a song that went like this. I knew an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed that fly. I guess she'll die. I knew an old lady who swallowed a spider. It wriggled and jiggled and tickled inside her. Well, she swallowed the spider to catch the fly, but I don't know why she swallowed that fly. I guess she'll die. I knew a lady who swallowed a bird. How absurd to swallow a bird. Well, she swallowed the bird to catch us. Well, you get the drift. It finally ends with, I knew an old lady who swallowed a horse. She's dead, of course. I was 30 years before I realized that the song was not about a fly or a silly lady. It was about lies. And I didn't realize this until <laughs> I finally accepted that I was an alcoholic. I'd been telling myself a lie. I had swallowed a lie for many years even though all the symptoms, all the, all the signs were there. And uh, I, uh, my parents put me in this school. We lived in a, in a community where I could attend another school that was very, that was very uh, advanced because the school was associated with San Francisco State College where they taught teachers how to teach. And every school classroom in this school had a set of chairs that they could set up for students were becoming teachers. And my fourth, fifth, and sixth grade teachers were all PhD candidates and extremely good educators. 
when I was through there, we moved to Marin County, where I spent most of my youth. And um, I was I, I had the fortunate uh, fortunate to, to go to high school, where I met some some very 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 uh, highly way overqualified teachers. These are people who were like my chemistry teacher went to uh, went throughout the country and designed the chem study course that's used all over the country. He was one of the editors, one of the writers of this course of study. My English uh, AP English class teacher, Cap Lavin, gave the eulogy for George Moscone, which he got me a job, who he got me a job with when he was running for governor after I had uh, graduated from high school and college. Now, I, in my family, my mother, I lived the first few years with my, my, her parents, my grandparents, and there was always you know, a cocktail hour. My parents, my mother remarried at the age of five, when I was five. My parents had a couple of glasses of wine. There was, I saw them drunk a couple of times when they came home from a party or something, but that was it. I remember though, when we lived, uh, first when I, when first, when I first married my, my father, my mother first married my father, down the street was a, was, a, was a ramshackle house and a man in a heavy overcoat who they called Al the alcoholic. He, and uh, that was that was a cautionary thing, you know, to see this man. He never he never seemed to have guests or friends. He kind of went in and out of his house. He very actually very rarely saw him. I had this specter in my my brain of being warned about Al the alcoholic. You know, you, that's the, you know that'd be your worst fate. Anyway, that's that was you know put in the in the history book somewhere back in the index of my brain. And uh, when I was in college, I drank, actually in high school is when I was first introduced to alcohol. I drank from the age of about 14, only on weekends. I was never drunk going to school, going to class, never got involved with that. I graduated, went to, went to college. And again, I, 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 was, I didn't have a, a drinking problem as far as I could tell. You know, I, was, I mean, I had no reason to believe I did. <clears throat> And it wasn't until I got out, actually, I was in a junior year of college, and the state of California changed. I had, I had a goal because I had all these teachers. My parents were teachers. These fantastic people that I met were teachers. I had great relationship. So I, I decided, hey, it's great to be a teacher because, you know, you get three months off in the summer. So who gets three months vacation, you know, or two and a half months? Nobody. So I thought this would be a great thing to do. While I was in high school, I was introduced to filmmaking. And a film that we made when I was a sophomore went on to uh, be distributed throughout the country. It was called The Idaho Test. I was asked as a junior to go to Los Angeles and speak uh, at the First American Film Institute Film Conference, and uh, where I met Gregory Peck. And it was the first, uh, it, was in the, it was held in the uh, Academy Awards Ceremony Theater. So this had a profound effect upon me. And I decided, you know, I want to be a teacher, but I want to teach language arts through media, through radio, television, and film. Because people didn't understand that any film that you see, even a commercial, has reams and reams of written work to, to uh, a, a script. But more than that, you have notes, you have discussions, you, you have dialogue that you have to, every, all the, all the what, we, what we call English, what was taught as English is involved in making media. 
radio, television, or film. And I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a special designated teaching credential to teach language arts through through film and media. This this had been kind of encouraged to me when I was in high school. And so I went into college with this expectation. And I was almost three quarters of the way through my junior year when they, the state of California changed the, the, the credentialing laws so that that was no longer a, an option for me. I had to I had to major in a traditional major. And it was too late for me to switch majors because my college was costing a lot, a great deal uh, for of my family. And uh, so when I got out, I went to work at a local high school and started as a clerk. Uh, I set up an AV department and was uh, and cabled uh, all the television playback that they were using real to real television. Uh, and so I started going back to school to get a teaching credential thinking that I was going to, because the state of California was supposed to set up a, a test you could take to, to teach within a traditional major. Communications, which is what I had majored in, wasn't, didn't qualify me to teach any subject in uh, high school. But they finally got a test together uh, for English teachers to qualify as an English teacher. And I passed it at the 95th percentile. And I went back to school and it took me two years to get my teaching credential. At this time, the state of California passed a, 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 a change in the way schools were, were funded and, and property taxes were distributed throughout the state. And the county that I lived in, which is why what I intended to do is I wanted to get a job as a teacher in the community I grew up in. And all of a sudden that community was, their budgets were slashed by like 30%, which is huge, which meant that there were no more teachers being hired. Well, I decided, well, maybe, maybe there's something else I can do. So I went back to school and I got a master's degree. This took me another two years in educational technology. I figured there's got to be, there's got to be some other work that I can, that I can qualify for, but I, I didn't see any openings when I was at, at San Francisco State. I was looking for jobs. I couldn't find any teaching jobs. They have a placement center. And, uh, and when they did that, and when all that happened, I, I suddenly realized I had to, I had to apply for a job outside of my community because my community wasn't going to get was there weren't going to be any teaching jobs. I got interviewed up in Grass Valley, California, which is about 150 miles away, and I was told at the time of the interview in June, well, you just have to come in and be your be our savior because they were asking for the kinds of things that I'd already done at San Rafael High School. And then in August, they said, well, uh, we're sorry, but the teacher who had, who had decided to start her own print shop decided to come back to work. The job no longer exists. This is a very important point. I hope I haven't spent too much time getting here. But what happened was my, all my hopes and expectations of life just collapsed. I interviewed for a job in Baker, Oregon. They were offering $7,500 a year to be a teacher. Even then, $7,500 a year to be a teacher. I mean, the, the miners who worked in the community there, which is why they built the school, they were making 10 times that much. And the teachers, they wanted, they thought teachers would want to live in the desert and teach mining kids, kids of miners, to teach for $7,500 a year. I became, I was very resentful, let me say that. I thought God had played a big joke on me. And I said, screw this. And I went back to the, I was still living in the community. I started, bar, I'd started bartending and, 
And my drinking started to increase because I didn't have to get up in the morning. I didn't drink during work, but as soon as 2 a.m. arrived when bars closed, I would start drinking. And I started drinking pretty heavily. Now, I wasn't a, a binge drinker. I drank the same amount every day. My, my roommate at the time introduced me to another substance called cocaine. And I suddenly thought, wow, this is great. I can be all jacked up and drunk at the same time. And I can drink and I can drink and I can stay vertical. Uh, this, was, this, was, this was a marriage made in heaven as far as I was concerned. And I, I, uh, I just thoroughly enjoyed drinking. I thoroughly enjoyed the people in the bar that I drank in and I worked in. And I, most of all, I have to say, I enjoyed the Irishmen, the Irish workers who came in. And uh, I, I mean, they were phenomenal. And over the course of, of many years, my best friend became a, a man by the name of Sheba Somera, who had worked on the, on the Rockwell a Moonlander for Rockwell. He was working as an elevator uh, a com a computer uh, programmer. And he had worked as a fireman in the Lower East Side of New York City, which he had to retire from because of the smoke inhalation. Anyway, he was he was a remarkable person, and and uh, and anyway, I, I fell in with this group of Irishmen who were who were serious drinkers, and I remember them saying, you know, we don't we we stay out of the bars on New Year's Eve because only the amateur drinkers come out on New Year's Eve, and they're dangerous. Amateur drinkers are dangerous drinkers. Anyway, I got a, I got, this progressed. I, I think I was drinking for about 15 years heavily and I got a DUI. And when my blood alcohol was taken at the, at the, at the jail, it came out at 0.38. I, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was told after being, you know, getting a conviction for driving under the influence that by the probation officers, that's, that's pretty high. You know, that's very high, 0.38. I said, well, I, I drink every day, you know, I, you know, I kind of took pride in it that I'd been conscious the entire time. I had never passed out. I have, I, I mean, I would drink to, to pass out. Yeah, don't, don't make no mistake about that because you got to overcome the effects of the cocaine after when it wears off a little bit, then you can go back to sleep if you drink and have enough alcohol in you. But that's, that was the purpose of the cocaine was just so that I could continue to drink and drink more and still function as a human being and not a cadaver. So anyway, I, <clears throat> at this point, I was, uh, I had, I had, I, I came to realize that I had a great future behind me. That all my, all my expectations and hopes for the, for the, for, for my future were, were rapidly dissolving. You know, alcohol is a universal solvent. It, it, it dissolves everything in your life. And it uh, especially dissolves dignity or self-worth. And uh, I was just surviving. That's all I was doing. I was working. I, I, I was working as a tile setter. I worked as a, as a painter. I worked. Uh, finally, I worked as a cook on a, or board a fishing boat. And this whole fishing boat was, was staffed by men who uh, who would had a place to live because they could live on the boat, and and we'd be off out off off the coast for nine or ten days, and they'd get a big paycheck. They go back and buy enough drugs to get high and and party, and then rack up a, a, a bill with their their dealers, 
and then get back, then they could get back on the boat. The dealers couldn't get to them because they were off the coast. But this was the pattern of life on this boat. And I thought it was pretty bizarre. And the boat almost sank a couple of times. And I decided maybe this wasn't a good career choice on my part. And one morning during this period, I woke up and I couldn't even hold down water. Uh, I instantly came up and this terrible pain right underneath my rib cage started, started gripping me like it was something squeezing. And uh, I called and I'd known my grandfather had had pancreatitis when he was tw in his 20s. I said, that's what I got. I got pancreatitis. I called, they took, my mother took me to the uh, hospital, the emergency room. And I spent the next six and a half weeks at Marin General. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but I was, my friends were told that my chances of survival were about 40% because I was in complete shutdown. My, 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 there was no sound coming from my interior. And, uh, and anyway, I'd never been in the hospital. And I remember after about 10 days, I, I, they put me out of the, took me out of the uh, ICU and put me in the regular general uh, population. And I called a, an acquaintance and said, bring me, bring me some clothes because I got to get out of here. They said they'd let me go, but I, they took my pants. So I, I need some pants. This acquaintance brought me my pants, brought me some pants and I managed to escape. That's when I realized how sick I was. I had to detach all the uh, IVs that they had and wrap them and put them under my shirt. Oh, he brought me a shirt too. And then they, the hospital called, we're gonna call the police. They had to, to have me brought back because I had this, this IV sewed into my chest. And I, I said, you don't have to do that. I, I realize now that I'm really sick. I'm, you know, I, need, I need to follow your directions. So that was my first acceptance that I had a real serious problem. And uh, about almost four weeks or four and a half weeks into my stay at this hospital, uh, a nurse came in one night. Oh, they found out when I first admitted me that I was allergic to heparin, which allows them to keep those, what they call heplocs, in fact, they're called heplocs, where they put the IV, they put in, inject uh, substances into your, into your subclavian. Uh, which is an IV set into your uh, chest. And uh, this nurse came in at 11 o'clock and uh, put the needle into the heplock. And I said, what do you got in there? And she said, heparin. I said, no, you, she didn't even look at my, my chart, which had heparin, allergy to heparin, one inch tall letters. And you didn't even have to open it. You just, it was right there in front. I'd gone into anaphylactic shock when I was first admitted because I'd gotten the heparin. And that was one thing that led me to think, you know, later on when I was introduced to AA, that maybe there is a God or something that interceded to save my life. But that's again, a coincidence is, is all I can say. It was a coincidence. I don't know something, something tipped me off to ask that question because I never asked any of the nurses, what are you doing or what do you have in that? That was, maybe there was something that I noticed that was different and that's why I asked. I'd never seen the nurse before. I never saw her again either. So when I got out, I stopped drinking. But what had happened was I'd become diabetic overnight. They gave me a box of, uh, of, uh, of syringes. And all of a sudden I had a whole new set of friends. I had been selling small quantities of cocaine in order to feed my own habit. because, And, and one thing I noticed was remarkable that 
that Ronald Reagan's war on drugs had been so remarkably successful that the price of an ounce of cocaine went from $2,200 an ounce to less than $800 an ounce. That's how good the war on drugs was doing. And all of a sudden, I could actually make a profit doing this. But I couldn't drink anymore. The smell of vodka and cranberry juice, both, which is what I drank mostly, uh, made me sick. But now I was introduced to new substances like heroin. And I had a, num a number of friends early in the 80s because everybody wanted a, a source of clean needles. And I had a whole source of them. I had an unlimited supply, basically. In fact, I went to the pharmacy one week and I had so many, I passed out, given out so many needles to my friends and associates that uh, I went for another box of 100 needles and the pharmacist never asked a word. Like, what are you doing? He knew exactly what I was doing because he could see I, I was an addict and he knew what the, what the health, of, health dangers were for anybody who injected drugs at that time because AIDS was just a monster. AIDS was just spreading everywhere, especially in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. As it turned out later, I found out that I got hepatitis C. I never got AIDS, thank God, because I didn't need to share needles. I had plenty of my own and I would just give them away to others. But I don't know how many people I may have shared hep C with, which is far more uh, transmissible than, than AIDS was. But that's another story anyway. <clears throat> Within a couple of years after not drinking, uh, but using heroin, I came to a new bottom. I, went, I took my a girlfriend that I had at the time up to my parents' house for Thanksgiving dinner and, and nodded out into the mashed potatoes. I remember straightening up with mashed potatoes stuck to my nose and I saw my mother's face and she's just like, and the girlfriend I, I brought stole my mother's Lomatril because she traveled a lot <laughs> and it was, it was made with uh, opium. And uh, that's what she called the local constabulary and said, you need to keep an eye on my son because he's, he's killing himself and I'm really concerned. So it wasn't, it wasn't too many week, months, a month or two later, I got busted. And now I got introduced uh, to a higher power in the form of a large man with black robes. And, uh, and then I was sentenced to a six month treatment pro program this was in 1991. 90, and, uh, and so I, I, I was introduced to the whole con all the concepts of recovery. I had had, because of my, my DUI, I'd, I'd had to go to AA meetings. I quickly learned how to forge the signatures on the cards and use different colored inks so it would look like it was genuine instead of forgery. And they don't check. So it was pointless because I wasn't there to learn anything or hear anything. But now I, I was kind of like, okay, I was relieved. I, I didn't have to use now. I didn't have to figure out how to use and how to get drugs or, or drink or anything. But after six months, I thought, you know, maybe I can control my use. I wouldn't drink again, but I could, I could just do heroin once a week. You know, that would work. And that did work for a while, but I had aftercare, so I had to test clean on Mondays. I figured, well, that would get out of my system. I didn't much care for marijuana, so I didn't have to worry about that. So then I got my second DUI after getting, getting into some, uh, some heroin, and then I was able to get it. So I, I got a bottle of port, and I was drinking, and I, and I crashed my car. 
So my second DUI was where I hit my bottom. That's when I finally accepted, you know, reality is a higher power. <laughs> and if I don't face reality, reality is facing me. There's no way around this, you know? So that's when I accepted that I needed to find a sober, clean and sober living house. And I became involved with the Marinolano Club. And I got hired as a cook, partly because of my experience as a cook on board this fishing boat. But what it did was it, it surrounded me with the fellowship. And I was going to meetings at this time. And I, I, I got my first sponsor was, uh, was, a, was a character who had been selling dope in, uh, in Fairfax as well. And had gotten involved with the dog. He, he said when he first came to AA and the preamble says, there are no dues or fees for AA membership. He thought they said Jews or thieves. And he was both, so he was relieved because it let him off the hook. But that's a sort of that's a sort of uh, uh, seriousness with which I, I chose my my sponsors. My second sponsor that I met at the Alano Club, he said that he had a higher power who he called who he named Timmy, and uh, that was another indication that he he and I had the same kind of feelings about higher powers, or about God as it was. And so. I accepted that I needed the fellowship and I, I went through AA. I, I accepted the steps and I and I performed, I worked with the steps that didn't have God involved. Or I just dropped the name of God out of the steps that it did, you know, grant me the serenity instead of God grant me. And uh and I didn't accept that God could change my defects of character. If anybody's going to change my defects of character, it seemed to me I had to do it. But but you see, the problem with reality is that I realized when I was, and I then after a lot of club, I started working at a six month treatment facility in my community. And, and I, and I, and I realized that, that my idea of what reality is as a newcomer was totally twisted because I, I was faced with new guys coming into the program, mostly set by court, almost all set by the courts who are absolutely insane. And I would get upset sometimes and I would, you know, I wouldn't, I, I never shouted. I shouted, well, I probably shouted at a few of them. But anyway, for not doing their, their tasks or their chores or doing anything or just being stupid and crazy. And my, my supervisor told me, George, these guys are crazy. You know, give them some slack. And that, that's kind of where I began to realize that reality is what is you know, as, as one counselor said in the six month program I was in, you know, if one person says you're a horse's ass, well, they may just have it against you. Two people, they may be in cahoots, but if three people tell you you're a horse's ass, maybe you ought to go looking for saddles. Because your re reality is, is basically what you can't, what you can't avoid or what you keep encountering. And as I said, that that uh, that song, I knew a lady who swallowed a fly. I had I had thought that that I was an alcoholic, that I could that I could get a, and that I could control my drinking. That was the critical thing that went on for way too long, because I had tried controlling my drinking even after, even after I realized it would kill me because that's what the doctors had told me, and I believed them. And that's that's kind of when I started to realize that I needed this I needed this fellowship, and I was fortunate because I was working in a fellowship, 
and I had counselors who had a lot more time, sober time. I had associate people that I went to. I went to meetings, but mostly, mostly not. Mostly it was through my work that I that I had talks. And and the thing about it is that you, when you work in in the recovery community, people will tell you when you're screwing up. <laughs> Generally speaking, they'll tell you if if you're not if you if if you're talking. They used to say out of the side of your neck. You know, if you're not being straight, or if you just got a pro an attitude problem, and the attitude of gratitude is what 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 I needed the most. You know, I I came to believe in terms of a higher power. It's like I have no problem. Richard Feynman, the, the physicist, said that I I don't have a problem with questions that can't be answered, just answers that can't be questioned. And that's sort of the way I look at it. It's like, you know, don't be too certain of what you what's real and what's not real. You know, you got to keep searching for it because that's the process of science. Science comes up, well, this is what real, and then somebody else discovers something new, and they go, oh well, I guess with that information, this is real. It's just like they said with Dr. Fauci. He said, don't don't wear masks at the beginning of this because they didn't have enough masks for all the first the the, the frontline people. The nurses and doctors, they didn't have enough masks for them. So he said, don't wear masks. But as soon as there were enough masks, then he said, yes, wear masks. They go, oh, he changed his mind. He, you know, he's, he's contradicting himself. No, he wasn't contradicting himself. He was just basing his, his reality on what was changing. Because reality changes, whether we want it to or not. <laughs> it's that simple. And we have to be willing to change with it. As I've as I've grown older, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot more accepting. My parents used to sit at the table. I, my, I on one end of the table, my, my father at the other, and my mother sat in the middle on her legs because she's only five feet tall and kind of mediated between us. But my parents used to argue all the time. And, uh, and it, was, it was, you know, it was instant. And, uh, and I've had to learn that, you know, I don't keep resentments, you know. It's, Resentments are hemorrhoids. They only hurt the person who's got them. And, and there's a lot of good talk about resentments. There's other good observations that I've learned. But I get off. If I, have a, if I have a problem with someone, I'll tell them. But my problem is talking, you know, I pre, premature articulation. And that often leads to uh, problems with trying to get my message across. I have to think it's just pause, not react, but reflect a little bit as to how can I, how can I express myself so that the person I want to convince of my point of view is going to hear it. And that's kind of what's been discussed about getting people to change their attitudes about vaccines. We're still in this thing, big mess, because people won't listen to reality. They won't take reality. They won't accept it. It's very simple. And now we have a whole bunch of people living in this world where Donald Trump won the election and they, they attacked the, the whole country. I said, you know, the denial, this is what denial is. And denial is something that'll kill you. It almost killed me. And it kills so many of us. They just said last year, 90,000 uh, drug addicts died of overdoses last year. They're not even addressing the number of alcoholics that died of liver failure, pancreatitis, God knows how many alcoholics died. They're just talking about 
drug overdoses. I have a foot in both of those worlds. So I know there had to be probably more alcoholics that died because I've known a lot of people, not a newcomers that, that I met in these Zoom meetings who, who've suddenly come in realizing and, 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 and alcohol sales went up. So what does that tell you during the pandemic? Alcohol sales went up because people had no constraint. They weren't having to go to work every morning. That's the only thing that limited my drinking was that when I had to get up in the morning and go paint a house or go you know, dig a ditch or, or go set some tile. And that's what my Irish friend said, you know, he has to work. That's why I couldn't be an alcoholic. By the way, he, he later went on to marry a nurse. And that was a tell for me. He knew he was an alcoholic and he made a very smart decision about the rest of his life when he went out and married a nurse. So anyway, I, I, I've only, I can only say it was, it was my great fortune to have worked in the recovery community because that's, that's what I've, it's all I've needed to, uh, that's what I primarily relied on to stay sober. I had to change friends because all my friends before that, none of them were sober. <laughs> and now, I don't know, I have very few friends that are drunks. I had a friend that I that couldn't stay, I got sober with 30 years ago and couldn't stay sober. In fact, but he would, he had more time sober than he did drunk. But when he got, when he decided to go back to drinking, he was absolutely pathetic. He had a master's degree, MBA from Stanford. He graduated from UC Berkeley. He worked in the, all over the world and he, and he was paid as a consultant. He made a quarter of a million dollars a year, but he, he, he died drunk having soiled his pants because he couldn't get out of his, the couch that he was sitting in. And he was the most brilliant friend that I ever had. And, and yet I wouldn't, I wouldn't, it would, it was an on again, off again, because when he would call me when he was drunk, he wanted to talk about something. I'd say, I can't talk to you while you're in this state. Call me when you're, when you're sobered up. I, I helped him in several ways, but it, I never could figure out what was, what was the demon that kept him going back to the bottle. And I've known other people that, that couldn't stay sober. And, and it's just the big mystery. And I, and I don't know that the steps can, can solve that problem for everybody. It can help people to kind of limit. And he would always go back to meetings. He would go come back, he'd go to meetings. He, got a, he had a sponsor. It didn't, it didn't solve the problem for him. And, and he's, you know, as, as somebody said that a sponsor says, you know, call me every day and I'll help you stay sober. If you call me drunk, you'll help me stay sober. And that, that's exactly the lesson I take from my friend. He was far more brilliant than I was, but I could be in exactly the same position that he wound up in if I go back to drinking because I tried controlled drinking and it never worked for me. You are the people that, that helped me stay sober and I wanna thank you all for being here. I hope I haven't gone too far into, my, into your time.